Matthew chapter 3, verse number 9. Once again, think it not to say within yourselves that we have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children. Everybody say awake unto Abraham. John 8 and 7. John 8 and 7 is, um, well, the middle of a, of a story that you're probably somewhat familiar with. Let's just go to John 8. Start in verse number 1. John chapter 8, verse number 1. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him and sat down. And he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned to death. What do you say? This they said, verse number six, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse number seven. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you. Let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a beautiful story in the word of God. Slightly mysterious, but beautiful story. So real quickly, the first thing that we're going to do is do our best to discover what is it that he wrote whenever he knelt down and stooped down, as the Bible says, and with his finger began to write in the ground. What could he have possibly written that when he got back up, their conscience began to be a, a testimony against them. What could he have written, followed up by the statement, let he who is without sin cast the first stone that made such an impact? And why did he have to kneel back down and write again? I think, uh, as mysterious as it sounds, that uh, we have a good answer for that this morning. We're going to run through this quickly. Uh, so that we can get to the point of the sermon. If you would, uh, turn with me to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17. A couple of things to keep in mind. First one, when Jesus did this, we're reading about it in the Gospel of John, but not a single word of the New Testament had yet been written. So everything that they are trying to do to accuse him, to tempt him, to fool him, to trick him. They only have the law according to their Old Testament with which to do that. Nope, not everybody understood Jesus Christ. You have to remember thing number two. He, ha- he has also not been crucified. He has not had the Last Supper. So technically, the New Covenant is not even underway at this point. The Gospel is being preached to bring them to a point of conversion to the New Covenant, But the new covenant is not sealed until it's sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Right. So we're sort of in this 
in between transition from old to new. Numbers chapter five, verse number 17. This is what they had to work with when they referred to Moses. They actually weren't referring to this portion of the Bible. They were just referring to as it's written in Leviticus, when somebody's caught in adultery to take them outside the camp to stone them. But in numbers, there's given a little bit more detail about how to ascertain the truth about the adultery before uh, any further action is taken. Numbers chapter 5, verse number 17. It says, The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it in the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering. And the priest shall have his hand in the bitter water that causes the curse. Verse 19, the priest shall charge her by an oath and say unto the woman, if any man is lain with thee, and if you have not gone aside, uh, I'm sorry, if you have not gone aside to uncleanliness with another instead of thy husband, be free from this bitter water that causes the curse. But if you have gone aside to another instead of your husband, and if you be defiled, and if some man have lain with you beside thine husband, Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among the people, when the Lord does make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that caused the curse shall go into thy bowels and make thy belly swell and uh, thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Verse 23, And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water. Verse 24, He shall cause the woman to drink the bitter water that causes the curse, and the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Go all the way down to... uh, Verse number 28, and if the woman be not defiled, but is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. This is the law of jealousies when a wife goes aside to another instead of her own husband. This uh, portion of the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 5, most of the chapter, but certainly this portion, is referred to as the Sotah, S-O-T-A-H in English, Sotah. And it is the law of jealousy or the law of adultery. If you didn't catch it, what they would have to do is bring a woman before the high priest. Everybody say Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us he is our great and final high priest. Amen. After the priesthood of Melchizedek, they'd have to bring her before the high priest. And the high priest would have something to do specifically with the dust on the ground. He would have to mix it up and put it into a vessel of water. And it would become the bitter water. And this would be uh, the tell-all. In other words, if the woman would drink it, one thing would happen if she was guilty. Another thing would happen if she wasn't. Side note, there's no record in the, in the annals or histories of Judaism where anybody ever drank this water and actually had their thigh rot or their belly swell. Um, so you can kind of take that, think on it, and see uh, perhaps the mercy of God even in the Old Testament. Uh, anyway, the point being, um, he had to do that, and then he had to... Uh, to put it in the water and she had to drink it. But the Jewish people in the priesthood, they don't do everything according to just as it's written in the Bible. They have their own little details in Mishnah and Talmud and oral tradition. In other words, uh, there, when the tabernacle was present instead of the temple, uh, well, even with the temple, things had to be changed out every once in a while. Um, in the Old Testament, it says uh, to never let the light of the menorah go out. Well, the Jewish people decided the way they would do that is they would... Whenever they had to clean it, they would just blow five of them out, leave two burning, clean the five, relight them, then blow the two out, clean those, and relight them so that it never went out. It says you have to replace the shoe bread, the 12 loaves, ever so often. Well, they didn't just allow priests to go in there, take the bread off, and bring the bread back. They didn't think that was reverent enough, so they had to enter in a certain way. They had to do the bread a certain way. They had to back out that direction, and the new bread had to be brought in from a new direction and placed down. It was all symbolic. Now, in the Bible, you don't get necessarily all those rules about how to do it, 
but those rules do exist in the extracurricular writings, if you will, of the priesthood. My point being, uh, in this particular uh, law uh, right here, the Sotal, Numbers chapter 5, they didn't actually do it exactly that way. What they ended up doing um, through a process of time is they would have the high priest actually write out, I, I can't remember exactly how many verses, but the most pertinent verses of the Sotal, he would have to write it out in the dust before he would take the dust and throw it in the water, symbolic of what the dust represented. After a while, what they did uh, in, in, in this particular place in the tabernacle and what later became the temple, where they would, ha- they would perform the ceremony of the Sotal, they actually made a plaque and had the Sotal written on it out of Numbers chapter 5, so that when somebody entered underneath that, it was already symbolic what they were doing, and so the priest actually would not have to write the whole thing out. He would just write Sotal and then take that and put it in the dust. Now, having that knowledge, it makes much more sense. When they plotted in John chapter 7 about how to, how to get him to, to mess up and violate the law of Moses, they brought a woman caught in the act of adultery supposedly to him in John chapter 8. They threw her down on the ground and said, according to the law of Moses, because she was caught in the very act, you should stone her. Now, if she was caught in the very act, that might even be true. But where is her husband? And where is the man that was with her that was caught in the act? And how do we know that it was adultery? You notice how in the, in the law of the Sotah it says nothing about the man that committed the adultery? The reason for that is in the Old Testament times, they were still allowed by the priesthood, not really by the word of God, but by the priesthood and by the Jewish laws to have concubines and to have more than one wife, to have uh, all these uh, different types of relationships. There's two or three names for them. So literally a man could be married have a relationship like that and technically not be in adultery because he could make the woman a concubine. The only way that adultery could take place was if the woman in John chapter 8 was married. But it never says that the woman was married. And it never and the man that she was supposedly with never comes forward. We don't know whether she was married or not, but if she was, it was her husband's job to take her before the high priest in Numbers chapter 5 and, and have with him and the priest perform this jealousy act. And he wasn't there. Jesus, they were thinking. They were hoping because of his age and because of the radical way that he taught and because how he seemed to be rebellious, that if they threw this woman down right out in front of everybody as a witness, claimed with multiple witnesses to catch her in the act of adultery, that he would get rattled, that he wouldn't know what to do, that he wouldn't understand how to overcome this, And I'd be willing to bet some of the people, some of these scribes and Pharisees, weren't familiar with what was supposed to happen themselves. So they're throwing out these accusations. Jesus gets down on on a knee, takes his finger, and begins to write in the dust. What does he write? You call it my opinion, and I'll, I'll agree with you, but I think there's good biblical record and historical record to assume that he wrote Sotah in Hebrew and then got back up and they read it and they saw and they recognized him as a rabbi because he was already called that multiple times. He wrote Sotah. They know what the word means. They know exactly what he's referring to, the law of jealousies. If you're so sure, let's have her drink the bitter water and see what happens. I'm sure some of them that did know knew then there was never a woman that drank the bitter water and had her belly swell and her thigh rot. So if they did that, they were going to be proven wrong. 
So he got them. Got them pretty good. And he said, I'll uh, let you who is without sin. You're all with sin because you, you violated the law of Numbers chapter 5. Cast the first stone. And of course they all drop their stones. He kneels back down and he writes again. What does he write the second time? Jeremiah chapter 17. Verse 13. There's this law in Hebrew documentation. At any time, if for any reason, whether it's because of a legal document, um, especially in like a title or a trust or whatever, if there were multiple names to be placed on a document, they had to be placed from the eldest to the youngest in order. It was a sign of respect. You didn't just write the names however you wanted. It had to go from the eldest to the youngest. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel. Two interesting things about this verse. That word hope is not hope. You look that word hope up in Hebrew, it's mikvah. Mikvah is the Hebrew term for baptism. Baptism was not a real word. It was kind of invented by the Romans. It was always immersion which means completely submerged in the water. We call it baptism. The Old Testament term is mikvah. I think that's interesting if we are on the right track about what he wrote because the missing ingredient for the sotal was the water that it was supposed to be mixed with. But here it says, O Lord, the mikvah, the water, the baptism of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. Remember at the end of John chapter 8, well, you didn't read it, but after he says, go and sin no more. Let's just read it real quick. And again, he stooped down, verse 8, wrote in the ground, and they which heard it being convicted uh, by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, everybody say forsaken, and the woman standing in the midst. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Jeremiah seventeen fourteen, heal me, O Lord. And I shall be healed, save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Second time he knelt down when he wrote in the earth, I would assume he wrote the names of the accusers from the eldest to the youngest. Which is also miraculous because there's a really good chance, basically 99.9% chance, that there's no way he should have been able to know maybe their names, but certainly not all their ages in order. So when they saw that, they saw him fulfill two Hebraic laws. They saw in themselves breaking at least one major Hebraic law. And their names were written in the earth and they forsook him. And he goes to the woman and he, he takes her hand and says, where are your accusers? Is there no man to condemn you? She says, there's no man. Go and sin no more. This is the mercy of God. This is an amazing story. But what I want to bring to you this morning is the dichotomy between Matthew chapter 3 verse 9 in John chapter 8, verse 7. So having that background, let's go back to these two scriptures. Matthew chapter 3, verse 9. Think not to say within yourselves that we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. What does he mean by that? How is he going to be able to raise up Abraham from stones? From, uh, from inorganic dead matter that has no life to it. From dusty old rocks. Well, when I, when I was in Israel in 2003, we got to stand in the place where he made that statement. And the stones that he was referring to are the stones that covered the front and or the top of the graveyards in Israel. 
is they're not buried the way or they weren't in the past, the way that we're buried now. They were put into sepulchers, if you will. And if they weren't uh, very wealthy, they, they would be covered from the top and kind of left out there. If they were uh, very wealthy, it was like inside of a cave and a stone was rolled in front of it. So whenever he said, don't say unto yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up out of these stones. Everybody say resurrection. God is able to raise up from these stones the children of Abraham. Because he's able to do the miraculous. Amen. John chapter 8 verse 7. When they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. Let's talk about what a stone is. A stone is a... really in in both verses, but especially in Matthew, a stone is a blockage. It is an impediment. One of the most amazing things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ is when they went to the gravesite, they saw that the stone was rolled away. And it was a great big heavy stone and it would have been a, uh, a pretty difficult task for just a few people to roll that stone away. But God had a plan. His plan was to raise up his son on the third day And one of the things that was standing in his way was this great big stone. Amen? A stone is an impediment. We've all heard stories, or we're probably told as a young child that if we weren't good right around Christmas time, that whenever we went to get our present from under the tree, we were going to unwrap it and it was going to be a box full of what? Box full of rocks or coal or stones. Stones aren't good. Not good gifts. Nobody likes stones. Stones hurt. Stones are usually, I mean, I mean, we have ways of dressing them up, but they're just in their own element. They're usually not that beautiful. They're, again, they're heavy and they're blockages. So what are some, what are some stones that we have in our own lives? We can, we can label these things stones. What is it that's been rolled in front of the cave? What is it that's been rolled in front of the doorway of your opportunity? The next step that you're supposed to take. What is it that's blocking you? Maybe it's the testimony of somebody else. Maybe it's what somebody else has said. Maybe it's what somebody else has done. I know I could, I could give you just my own testimony because I'm no, I know myself the best, better than I know anybody else. And I, we're transitioning right now from one place to another. And uh, the devil, he shows up. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, there's not any kids in here, right? I don't want to ruin Christmas. But I'll just tell you this, uh, this little story once upon a time. I don't know what, uh, I don't know what provoked me to this um, task, but... I was just thinking about the similarities one day between Santa Claus and Satan. And I decided to write a song. Nobody is a fan of that, I guess. But it's not it's not that I'm anti-Christmas. I'm not the Grinch. I just thought it was very I just thought it was it was it was very funny. Because the first thing that stuck out to me is, you know, Santa and Satan are very similar words. Just, that was actually one of the lines in the song. Take the end, move it to the end instead of Santa Claus. Now you have Satan. So it kind of rhymed. Anyway, uh, so they have the similarity there. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Then I thought, you know what? Santa Claus is big and red. And typically when you think about Satan, you think of this big red beast. But Satan was originally an angel, which means he started out above. And then he got kicked out and he fell down. 
into the fire. Fallen angel. Santa Claus starts off above, top of the chimney, and falls down where you make fire in the chimney, right? So I was like, whoa, this is getting crazy. Then I thought about Satan and all of his little imps and all of his little demons, and Santa Claus has his elves, and there was all this, all this stuff going. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And, and Santa Claus, he, he bases everything that he does for you on whether you were good or bad. And that's also the lie of the devil. You can be good enough to go to heaven or you're going to be bad enough to go to hell. And if you will give into his theology, if you will, he'll give you gifts. And this is true. And same with Santa Claus, except that he doesn't exist. There are no kids in here, right? Okay. Uh, so, oh, Adriel, I'm sorry. Just, look. <laughs> don't, <laughs> I'm just making up stories. Don't believe me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, the uh, the point is, God, what was the point? Yeah, I know. Uh, the The point is, uh, Satan is a gift giver. That's what I was getting at. He's a gift giver. He'll promise you things. Um, he he lives in this world, but he is also of this world. And he has ways, uh, Solomon writes extensively about it, especially in the book of Ecclesiastes, how it seems like the evil men in this world have an easier time ascertaining wealth and having fun than the men who try to be righteous and follow after God. It seems like they have a harder time. Solomon writes extensively about uh, the hard work and the sorrow that accompanies wisdom but the, the ignorant bliss that accompanies foolishness and folly. And he writes, and if you read all of Ecclesiastes, sometimes it sounds like he's almost getting depressed and almost saying that, you know, I've looked at, at both ways. I've seen everything in this world. And at the end of the day, there's no new thing under the sun. This is what happens to these kind of men. This is what happens to this kind of men. The New Testament tells us it rains on the just and the unjust. Uh, all of these things and what you what you see in the world is it doesn't well, we just be real honest we talk about blessings in the kingdom of god we talk about as christians being blessed and and receiving god's blessing and receiving his best and the tithe and the offering if we give that that he'll he'll mash it together he'll he'll multiply it he'll give back and that's absolutely true and we talk about god giving good gifts and that's absolutely true but what you find out after a while after serving god for a few years you figure some things out it's not always peaches and cream right? It's not always, it's not always fluffy and pink. It's not always cotton candy and sunshine. You go through things and every once in a while you'll start to get angry because you'll see men that have no part of serving God, that absolutely hate God, and it'll seem like everything is working out for them. We say promotion comes from above, but you see men who have no notion of God get promoted all the time. How does that work? How does that happen? God is not the only giver of gifts. Satan is also a giver of gifts. But Satan is also the father of lies. So he'll show up with a really well put together present. It'll be a real shapely box, real beautiful wrapping paper, perfect little bow with a label on it. You can call it the label of wealth. Sometimes he'll write on their love. Sometimes he'll write on their blessing. Sometimes he'll write on their just your name. Sometimes he'll write on their everything you ever wanted. But don't open the box. 
Because you're going to figure out one day that what's inside that box is not what's written on the outside of the box. What's inside that box is actually just a stone. It's no good. It's an impediment. But it's dressed up like something else. It's an impediment between you and God. See how the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil? But in another place it says money answers all things. The love of money is the root of all evil, but he says he's going to take your seed and multiply it and give it back. The love of money is the root of all evil, but he says he's going to prosper you in the Lord. The love of money is the root of all evil, but he talks about promotion coming from above. How do all these things exist at the same time? Because you've got to understand, it's not really necessarily what you're getting or what's happening or what's going on. It's about how that thing acts and how you react to it in your life because the love of money is the root of all evil but it doesn't mean that money is all evil but some of us pray for wealth not understanding that if the devil himself showed up in a bright shiny suit with a perfect little box with a bow wrapped on top of it labeled wealth 10 million dollars 100 million dollars and set it down in your lap you would think that it's a blessing but he knows and god knows it's really an impediment because it's going to take you right out of the game it's what you think you want But it's what you really don't need. Stones will come. Impediments will come in your life. Here's what I really want to share out of Matthew chapter 3 and John chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says that God is able of these stones to raise up. Everybody say awake. God is able to raise up. Everybody say life. In John chapter 8. He says, let him first cast a stone at her. These stones were meant for death. They specifically picked up these stones in order to kill. I looked up the word in Greek. It's the same Greek word for stone in both verses. One is used for life and one is used for death. But they are the same stone. What does that mean for you and me? Maybe somebody in your life isn't treating you right. Maybe that's an impediment to your own relationship with God. Maybe you've received a stone. Maybe your finances have gone stone cold. Maybe your love for your spouse has gone stone cold. Maybe your relationships with friends have gone stone cold. I don't know what it is, but I know this. The word doesn't change. You're carrying around a stone. It can be used for life or it can be used for death. It has power either way. It's the power that you give it. It's how you use that stone. It's the words that you speak to that stone. God said, if you love those that love you, you've done no wonderful thing. Even the, even the heathen do that. Even the pagans do that. But if you can find a way to love people that don't love you, that take advantage of you, that despitefully use you, then you've done something. Then you've done something. We're coming to a conclusion. I believe that he said to love your enemies, and that's re- everybody knows it's real easy to repeat. It's real difficult to do. Love those that despitefully use you. Real easy to repeat. And you know what I kind of figured out lately? The reason why it's so easy to repeat is because most of us at any given point in time, we don't have enemies necessarily. 
Who's your enemy right now? You might not have any. You might have some next week, though. Never know what's coming. Never know what stones you're going to be delivered. Those that despitefully use you. Yeah, I can believe in that because nobody's despitefully using me at the moment. Well, whenever you start to be despitefully used, that's a much harder scripture. Easy to say, hard to do. Um, I guess I'm telling you, we all stand on the same piece of rock. For some people it's a blessing, for some people it's a curse. But it's the same rock. It just matters what are you going to do with it. And I'll tell you how, why I believe within Christianity, within the church, there are two different reactions. Because some people are hearers of the word and some people are doers. And there's a lot of people that hear the word, that have accepted the Lord and walk in salvation and will see him in heaven. I'm not taking that away. But there are other people that do the word. And those people, you'll find a lot more peace. You'll find a lot more happiness. You'll find a much better testimony. You'll find a lot less hell on the way to heaven. But it doesn't seem right. It seems like you'll find less hell if you fight against it. But in reality, we learned a great lesson in Sunday school this morning. You'll find less hell if you just stand and endure it. But stand. Don't sit. Don't back down. Stand. Jose was in a situation where he was ready. He took a stand and he was ready to fight. And God said, no. Don't fight. I'll fight. You stand. Okay. Okay. Having done all you can do to stand, stand therefore. Having on the full armor of God. Jesus said, don't don't say unto yourselves that you have Abraham as your father. Don't think that you have an out. I'm trying to tell you right now, God can bring life out of these dead stones. What stones do you have in your life? What have they killed? What have they smashed? What are they covering? You need a resurrection. You need to wake up. We need to wake up as a church. I need to wake up as a pastor. I love that video. And I feel like God is saying, awake, O sleeper. Arise, O sleeper. You are a hearer, but you're sleepwalking. I want you to wake up and stand and do all that you can do to stand. And when you've done all you can do, stand therefore and endure because I've given you a shield. I've given you a breastplate. I've given you a helmet. I've given you a sword called the word of God. And your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel. I will fight the fight if you will take the stand. Don't pick the stones up and start throwing them at Set the stones down and watch God bring life from a dead object. Isn't that how he did it in the beginning? There was nothing and then there was everything. That quick. So who are we to get so fearful when it looks like we have nothing? Because the moment you walk out of this door, you could have everything. It can happen that fast. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Amen.